This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. I'd like to welcome the authors Anne B. Clay and David R. Montgomery to Digging in the Dirt this afternoon. David teaches at the University of Washington, where he studies the evolution of topography and how geological processes shape landscapes and influence ecological systems. He is the author of several books, including Dirt and the Hidden Half of Nature. Anne B. Clay is trained in biology and natural history and has worked in the fields of environmental stewardship and planning, as well as public health. With the help of mulches and microbes, she has developed gardening practices that build and safeguard soil health. Anne collaborated on her first book, The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health, with her husband, the aforementioned David Montgomery. Now, they have written their latest book entitled, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So congratulations on the new book. It's getting some really nice reviews. I'm going to jump right in and say, explain to us what you mean by what your food ate. Sure, Kevin. So we all have heard this. You are what you eat or what you ate. And what the book really does is we start peeling away that proverbial onion to look at what it is our food ate, because that turns out to have uh, a big influence on our health and on the health of the land. And, and you know, some people think, wow, you guys should have written this book as the first one. But in fact, probably had Dave not uh, written dirt and then, you know, we follow that up with the hidden half and growing a revolution. We weren't really equipped to write this book until all of the other ones were written. And so in many ways, this is sort of a, a synthesis of earlier work and research that that really gets at and pins down why it matters how we grow our crops and why it matters what we feed the animals that um, you know end up as part of the human diet. So explain to me how food eats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we don't we don't normally think about, you know, plants as having a diet, but in effect they do through what they take up from the soil that sort of accounts for their diet. You can think of the root system of a plant as kind of an external stomach. I mean, they're kind of inside out relative to us and um, you know, and the soil has a diet, too, in terms of what it can be fed uh, in terms of farming practices, whether the soil is fed a lot of you know, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, for example, or whether it's fed compost and mulch. Um, the life in the soil will consume those things. And so we trace the concept of essentially a diet through from farming practices and how they influence the health of the soil to how the health of the soil um, influences what gets taken up by plants or their diet what livestock eats, you know, that's a little more clear. They're animals, so we're more comfortable thinking about them having a diet in terms of whether they're eating, you know, say the leaves off of living plants or, uh, you know, processed seed oil derived uh, rations in feedlots. They have a different diet. And it turns out that what our food ate, how plants are raised and how animals are fed influences what ends up in our diet in ways that connect directly to, to human health. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, in fact, I always tell people who ask me, they say, because they think I know a lot about this, which I don't. <laughs> You've <laughs> forgotten more than I know. But I always say the plants don't have stomachs and the soil is the stomach. So you got to take care of the soil. So that makes sense that, uh, that this could be a problem. So you say in your book, far too many of us remain poorly nourished despite eating more than enough food. And it's your premise that the health is so the health of the soil is so poor that the food is not nutritious. You want to expand on that a little bit? Well, yeah, one of the things that we we uh, you know found in researching what your food ate was that there's been uh, historical changes very recently in terms of some of the components in the human diet. Uh, that reflect the way our farming practices were modernized, modernized or brought to what's now considered conventional farming in the 20th century. And that has resulted in declines in things like micronutrients, which are um, things like uh, some of the mineral elements, copper and zinc, for example, that we need in small amounts. We don't need a whole lot of them, but we need that little bit, an awful lot. And it turns out that life in the soil is, is essential for getting those kinds of mineral micronutrients into delivered to our crops and into plants and therefore into our diet and our food supply. And modern farming practices have also influenced uh, the provisioning of what are known as phytochemicals in, in our crops. And phytochemical is a fancy word for chemicals that a plant made. And, and there are things like the beta carotene in carrots, the lycopene in tomatoes, that things that have been shown in the medical world to have po- beneficial or positive effects in our diet when we get enough of them. They function as antioxidants or anti-inflammatories that help us stay healthy. They don't, they don't keep us alive in the sense of providing the calories our bodies need to burn as fuel. But you know, one of the implications of what we put together in the new book is how the way that we prioritized you know, yield over everything in agriculture for the last 80 years or so, trying to grow enough food to feed the world, uh, while it was very successful at doing that, some of the methods we use to do it have inadvertently compromised our ability to nourish the world with things that are actually promote and benefit our lasting health. So in trying to focus on uh, enabling survival, we've kind of undermined our ability to thrive. And that's where Anne and I in the book argue that we need to reorient thinking about agriculture, just not just feeding the world, but to better nourishing the world. And to do that, we may have to expand our definition of you know how we think about nutrients to include things that are not as uh, typically considered nutrients in the nutritional world, things like phytochemicals, and focus a lot on some of the minor components of what's in food, the micronutrients. So you're coming down on conventional agricultural practices. Basically, they've sort of unraveled this partnership between the soil and the plants. Yeah, in, in a big way. One of the impacts of conventional agriculture on the nutritional quality of crops also has to do with, there's of course what, what David mentioned, things like micronutrients. Um, so these are what, what he said, stuff like copper, iron, and so on. But what we, we also are learning about this is that it's not just the sort of inert, inanimate things that are, that are there in the soil. Um, there are also this whole, this whole world of microbial metabolites that are sitting there in the soil that are made by soil microorganisms. And these are are compounds and molecules that a plant takes up as well. And we write about in the later, some of the later chapters of the book about a couple of these things. One of them is pretty interesting. It's it's actually, it's an amino acid. It's uh, called 
ergothionine, or those who are researching it, just call it ergo. And it, it turns out that bacteria and fungi that live in the soil make this compound and human cells have receptors for ergo. And so it's coming into our bodies and what it's thought to be doing is playing a, a role in sort of what you could consider this, this whole realm of not so much how our bodies and, and our cells and tissues and organs grow and develop, but once they're there, so, so that's to say, you know, once we're way beyond, you know, a babe in arms and we're into adulthood, all this biomass that all the, the calorie based kind of nutrients grew, which is our body, somehow we have to take care of that, Kevin. And so that's where the microbial metabolites like ergo come into play. That's also where phytochemicals come into play some of the micronutrients come into play and, and fats also, they're, they're kind of a dualistic kind of nutrient because they do have caloric value, but fats also do a whole lot of things function wise. And, and that's another really interesting part of the book that was a lot of fun to research was how um, fats interact with our immune cells, which I think, you know, these days living, uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe we're in for pandemics for some time to come. And so that's really interesting in the just sort of the context of world events is what does our immune system do with fats and why the balance of fats and animals ripples through into our bodies, you know, in both good ways and bad. So, you know, we're part of one of the main messages of the book is we really do need to be thinking about this world of, you know, quote, nutrients and nutrition really um, differently and more, more broadly. So to me, it seems like this is something that we really didn't know much about, that it's just the new wave of regenerative and organic and, and people like yourself are doing research about the soil and how it's, there's a lot going on under there. There's a lot of cities of different kinds of living things that are helping the plants be who they are and give us what we need nutritionally. Am I right? Is what we're talking yeah. about? Oh yeah. That's very, very much in the right direction thinking about it. We've, we've, you know, in the 20th century, in terms of agriculture, we, we tended to think about the soil as a physical medium that would hold up plants as we added the chemical constituents that it would take to round out their diets, to grow more of them and feed everybody. And we kind of forgot about the role of biology in the soil, which mm -hmm. is a bit ironic given that agriculture is fundamentally a biological enterprise. Um, but it's in great part because it's only been recently that the windows windows have really opened into understanding microbial ecology. You know, think about how difficult it is to uh, just understand the ecological relationships between the organisms we can see with our senses. It took us centuries to figure it out. And, and we're still figuring it out. Now, now take that down to the microscopic level where we can't directly observe organisms with our with our own senses, and many of them kind of look pretty similar, little blobs. <laughs> um, it's difficult. It was only with the, the advent of gene sequencing technology that we really got the ability to start thinking about and investigating and testing and probing their ecological relationships with one another. And it turns out they're very dynamic ecosystems. 
that that have evolutionary roots that reach right back to the dawn of of plants uh, leaving the ocean and co colonizing the continents. There's been partnerships they've formed, honed over hundreds of millions of years, with microbial life in the soil, fungi and bacteria. And most of those relationships turn out to be either harmless or beneficial to the host organism. And we essentially inadvertently undermined many of those relationships with the advent of our reliance on a lot of mechanical tillage coupled with the over-application of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers and focusing on growing, you know, one or two key crops on a farm or in a field, functional monocultures. Because Modern, modern agriculture. Exactly. The, the fundamental characteristics of modern agriculture inadvertently undermine those beneficial relationships between soil life and our crops. And so what the whole world of regenerative agriculture is thinking about is, is how can we actually help restore those relationships and enhance the native fertility of the land as a consequence of agriculture, rather than continuing to degrade it in the, the way that um, I wrote about in the dirt book, you know, 15 years ago, when Ann and I first started getting into thinking about these issues. Mm -hmm. So what's the answers here? I mean, do you, you think large scale corporate farming is going to make the change at some point? Or is this going to be local and smaller scale stuff that is uh, regenerative? I mean, do you, I, I don't know if I see corporate farming turning regenerative, but they may because of necessity and because it works better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I've become more of an optimist on this issue. Uh, the farther that Ann and I have do delved into this subject, when I was finishing writing Dirt, it was kind of hard to find an optimistic angle. There's so many societies in the past that have degraded their land to the point where it, you know, it burdened their descendants with, with um, very difficult conditions, shall we say. But today, I think we're starting to see a growing realization that practices that foster soil health are not only good for uh, the soil and the land, but they're good for farmers too, because it can allow them to use less nitrogen fertilizer, less diesel, less um, pesticides. And those are three of the real big expenses in modern farming. And so I see a lot of room for, you know, not just uh, sort of small scale farms and local and local adoption of regenerative practices, but I've been on some farms that are, you know, 20,000 acre, very mechanized farms that have figured out ways to actually regenerate the fertility of their land through regenerative practices, through combining not tilling with uh, growing cover crops to replace a lot of nitrogen fertilizer and growing a diversity of crops. And those farmers have been very successful and profitable. So I kind of am hoping to see over the next few decades, a natural progression towards what appears to be a more solid philosophical foundation for farming based on promoting soil health that actually practically works out for farmers once they can figure out what the right way to apply it on their land in their climate with their soil to the crops they want to grow and that then that part can be a challenge so i don't want to pretend that it would be an easy transition but i see a path for both, both small and large scale uh farms to actually adopt more regenerative practices yeah my experience with farmers are they're, they're sort of show me kind of guys and gals you know they want to see results and then when they see their neighbor doing well with for instance cover crops i mean upstate new york where i go quite often i see lots of fields covered now is cover crops everywhere and which was always bare land before that and that's one of the three things you uh, say in your book that we need to do and that's the first one right minimize disturbance of the soil maybe you want to talk about the three things yeah no that's uh, very much the case um, we're starting to see you know less bare ground on farms and more farmers thinking that bare ground's not a good thing 
And so what's wrong with bare ground? Uh, it erodes. And if you lose, if you lose the topsoil, you're losing the best stuff first because the, the, most of the fertility in the soil is held in the topsoil and erosion happens from the top down. So, you know, uh, not disturbing the soil. So not plowing and not, and keeping the ground covered with living plants with cover crops in between cash crops is really sort of the start of what one needs to do to keep the land, uh, keep the soil on the land and to keep organic matter in the soil to build up organic matter. And why is that important? Well, it's, 40% carbon, which matters for how we're thinking about carbon budgets uh, globally, but it also matters because it's the fuel that helps to um, drive the, the underground economy, it feeds all those microbes in the soil, which help keeps nutrient cycling and getting uh, you know, minerals out of rock particles and into our crops and get into our bodies. But so those, those three, the three principles that we found were fairly generalizable for regenerative agriculture were minimizing disturbance of the soil, keeping the ground covered with living plants, and growing a diversity of crops. And what that all translates into are practices that cultivate the beneficial life in the soil. It all goes back to the microbial biology. We're speaking with Anne B. Clay and David Montgomery, who have written a new book called What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. So in this regard about, you know, what our food eats and where, where it grows, what are you, what's your opinions about hydroponically grown crops? Are they going to get some of this stuff or is this, being, <laughs> I know it's a loaded question, but I, <laughs> I think yeah. we have to touch on it here. Oh yeah. Well, there's, um, you know, one of the things that is fairly difficult for me to see how it could really um, work in a hydroponic system is getting the sort of full complement of phytochemicals that a plant can can produce in response to engagement with microbial life in the soil, because that's sort of the pathway through which much of it is actually generated. In terms of mineral micronutrients, you can always add soluble minerals to a solution for plants to take up, but the questions beyond that for that then becomes, well, where do you get them from? What does it take to actually get them to where you're growing the plants mm -hmm. um, and so forth? So, you know, there's certainly very uh, compelling applications for hydroponic farming. You know, space travel is obviously one of them. If we you know, start looking at going long distances, it doesn't make a lot of sense to drag soil around the universe. Um, but on our home planet, where one of its defining characteristics is that healthy, fertile soil supports life on land, you know, I think we have an opportunity to rethink how we engage with the soil that may be parallel to the whole hydroponic issue. But the, you know, the obvious application would be for urban farming. And there's, you know, there's for growing certain crops, it may work fairly well. Um, but, you know, I think there's still concern about sort of what gets into our food supply that way in terms of particularly in terms of phytochemicals. Yeah, I see it happening more and more. I mean, it, there's a lot of corporations starting businesses, you know, where they can have the food on the roof and hydroponically and then bring it down to the restaurants and all that. But what is the value of the nutritional value of the of the uh, lettuce, for instance, or whatever you're growing? It's, it's still an open question, I think. Yeah, I, I think the biggest question about it, Kevin, is that we don't know what these differences are. And the reason we don't, no, is because you know there's not research there's not there's not research behind this and that sort of has to do with you know the sources that that fund research too so i you know it's long been known that you can grow plants in water in fact i'm looking here at our kitchen counter and um 
I've got some mint in a jar that a neighbor gave me. And if I left that there long enough, it's going to grow roots. And I've got another thing in there, some epizote, which is a, another herb. And uh, so we know that plants will, will grow in water, but you know, I would be really interested to take maybe some of this mint and, and if we had, you know, unlimited funds, drop this mint off to a lab and then go back. Uh, I got this mint from a neighbor and go back and get some from her soil and say, you know, is there any difference in this? And I, I think that's the biggest problem with it is that um, we just don't know what the differences are. We do know that Certainly the microbiome that's sitting, you know, around a plant's roots in a nutrient rich, you know, water solution is going to be really different than, than what is happening in a plant uh, whose roots are embedded in the soil. And, you know, those are two really different habitats for microorganisms because, you know, one is going to have oxygen, you know, in it, one isn't, and, you know, all kinds of, of things like that. I would like to get to what you can recommend to the audience as to what would be some of the things that you would recommend immediately to start doing with their own growing, like say, or if you're, there's a small farmer listening, what, what's, that hasn't embraced this stuff yet? What are you finding out there that people are doing that is working? You know, one of the things I found was very, uh, a common element among uh, farmers in different regions around the world that had decided to go in a more regenerative direction is they had to tinker a little bit to figure out how to get um, methods that, that drew from the minimal disturbance, maximal cover crops, and, and, and greater diversity uh, uh, repertoire to actually work on their farms. And so for, you know, for small farmers who are thinking about maybe moving this direction, I'd recommend that they start with a little, with the corner of their farm and start uh, looking at uh, some of the practices that could help build up soil organic matter and help build up soil life in their soil. And then the things that are working sort of keep going with those and keep tinkering. There's a number of demonstration farms around the country, and there's a lot of um, farm days that regenerative farmers are holding to like share their ideas and their knowledge with their, their more conventional neighbors and, and their other regenerative neighbors who are looking for the advantages of, look, of seeing how lots of ideas have played out. In terms of the consumer end of things, you know, we've gone towards um, really trying to go mostly 100% grass-fed meat and dairy and looking at our own diet and trying to know more about what the farmers we're buying food from uh, actually did to their land. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's a stretch for any farmer or gardener out there to understand that um, the quality of their soil has a huge influence on the health and yield of their crops. And if you buy into that, which I think most every farmer and gardener does, then it's a question of what sort of what Dave just said, looking at things that improve the health of your soil. Because once you get these biological processes in place, you're much less likely to be <clears throat> spending money on all of the things that, you know, maybe you, you know, purchased previously that maybe you didn't know it at the time, but they were compensating for, or at least attempting to uh, compensate for a lot of this biology. And part of the thing about farming and gardening is, you know, it, it's not the natural wild world um, per se, but there are certainly elements of 
the way wild plant communities and our natural lands function and, and, and so forth. Elements of that transfer straight through to farming and gardening. And that's where you get this whole crossover of, you know, agriculture meets ecology. And that intersection, I think, is rich with um, ideas and practices that farmers and gardeners can explore in whatever region of the country they're in. Because obviously, somebody growing chili peppers in New Mexico has a really different set of conditions than somebody you know, growing, you know, greens in Connecticut, let's say. Mm -hmm. Well, we've been talking to Anne B. Clay and David Montgomery. They have a new book out called What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. Any final word there, David or Anne? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the basic takeaway, I think that we came away with from this book and really sort of the whole sequence of books we've worked on is, it's perhaps not too surprising, but it turns out that very realistically, what's good for the land is good for us, too. Very good. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, right. Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 